everybody, and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. My name is Paul, and I am your host as always. Today, I am super excited to introduce Mr. Brian Forsyth. Uh, I think he lives in Nashville now uh, from the band Kicks. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> so are you in Nashville? I think that that's what, uh, that's what I heard. Yeah, okay. yeah. I moved here about three years ago. Okay. Any particular reason for that move, or you just wanted to get out of L.A., or...? Uh, well, um, I was in a, a long-term relationship that ended in, and, uh, so I, I was sort of on my own all of a sudden right. <laughs> and, uh, she owned the house. So I had to try to find a place to live and, and it was, uh, impossible to find something like, I didn't want to keep renting. Right. I, I wanted to buy something in, in, you know, LA is just prices are ridiculous so i started looking around here and it was like oh that's like a no-brainer and plus the music scene right right so let's talk about nashville for a moment so i uh i live in pittsburgh now but before we moved to pittsburgh we spent some time looking in nashville in particular we looked around in east nashville um Mm -hmm. as like a sort of a cooler up-and-coming spot but also a lot of stuff happening um, when you were, when you were thinking about Nashville, you know, there's lots of the neighborhoods like the Gulch and of course, downtown Broadway and, uh, Germantown. Um, so what was, when you were moving there and wanting to be involved in the scene, what, what was the ideal spot for you? Well, I wasn't sure. I, I remember when I, cause there, I have a lot of friend, mutual friends that live around right. that, that have moved here. So I was getting like all this different information coming from different people and, um, at first somebody told me Franklin and so that's where I started, right. which was, it was still way better than LA as far as prices go. And then I thought, you know, once I started looking around there, I thought, well, then, oh, and then I had another friend mention East Nashville. Yeah. So I looked there and then I just started poking around other spots. And I just noticed if I go out of the immediate area, just a slight bit, the prices drop yeah. even yeah. more. So I planned a trip here, um, when was it, uh, January 2019, and I spent a week just driving around. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Different areas. But the thing was, that, like, East Nashville was cool. It kind of reminded me of, like, Silver Lake or something out in L.A., yeah. kind of the hip area. But it was a little more pricey, and, it, and the houses were smaller. So okay. I ended up up in Goodlettsville, which is, like, 10 miles north of Nashville. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So, of course, uh, you've been in the band Kicks for a really long time, a, a successful band, and we're going to get into that. But I want to start by uh, setting the scene here. In the mid-'80s, I was in high school in Connecticut. Our mutual friend, uh, Mark Tremalia, uh, w- was in my high school. We were friends back then. And I remember my friend Mark Lucier brought in Midnight Dynamite. Um, by kicks and I was like well that's cool but you know they don't they don't have the the look like Motley Crue and Dokken and stuff because that's what we were all listening to at the time you know we were doing more of the glam thing and we're like well this is more like I don't know this is more rock and roll it's not it's not um it's not like the LA thing uh so if you think back to that time Midnight Dynamite to me is like the first time that I heard kicks and so it's like the coming out party for kicks. Although I know you had already been on Atlantic records and all of that stuff. What do you remember about that time? And especially like the glam era that was going on? 
Yeah, that, that was, um, yeah, we came out and our first record came out in 81. So it, it was like pre-glam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was still, I was still into like the late seventies stones kind of look right. <laughs> at that. Point. And then, you know, of course, you know, uh, Hanoi rocks came along and made a huge impression, you know, their, their whole like image and everything. Right. So midnight dynamite was kind of a transition, like as far as like the, our sound and our look, okay. you know, it was, I mean, I personally, I was heavily influenced by Hanoi Rocks and, and Keith Richards at the same time. Okay, cool. And so when, I want to talk about the, the label and that sort of stuff in your experiences, but just like your personal thing of what was happening at that time, were you, were you guys chasing um, success? However, again, however you want to define success, because to me, as a high school kid, for me, it was like, well, I'd like to be in a band like Motley Crue and make a million dollars and have a Lamborghini and all of that stuff, you know, but having no idea what it was actually like. But were you guys like going for that at the time, that, those early 80s days? Well, of course, you know, everybody wants to be rich and famous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we sort of had, because we were East Coast, so we, right. we kind of like, we were like, ah, you know, that whole L.A. thing, the, all the finger tapping guitar players and all that stuff out there. We, we weren't part of that. And we're a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, well, there's, now I found out after the fact that there were several bands with people our, our age. So, but they were just, you know, L.A. was heavily influenced by Van Halen. And, uh we were heavily influenced by like 70s stuff so uh but anyway so we yeah so we were influenced by that whole like the ramones kind of thing where you just tour and tour and tour or acdc is another one they toured forever and then finally you know made it and that was sort of our plan was sort of just go for the long run and and build up over time and and uh and eventually break through, you know? Right. Being an East Coast band, particularly being from Maryland, Maryland's not New York City, or it's not Nashville, or it's not L.A. You know, if, if you guys were, were pushing hard and you were working it, why not move to one of the big music centers? We did have people ask us that along the way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think... We just kind of felt unique being not part of any of those big scenes. Right. We were fairly close to New York, though, within driving distance, so we played there a lot. We, we had little pockets. It's funny because L.A. was, we didn't play there very often, especially back in the old days. Mm-hmm. But we did play New York a lot, We and North Carolina was a big spot for us. Oh, and cool. Yeah. When, when, you, when I think about Atlantic Records, especially then, you know, I think of Zeppelin, of course, and bands like that. But Sabotage from Florida was the first band I realized was on a big label, like a band that I loved when they were little, and then they were on Atlantic. And and you guys had a similar thing where suddenly you were on a very, very, very big label like Atlantic. What do you remember about the signing process and being courted? Did you feel like, you know, did you feel like a king? You know, hey, man, we're getting courted by Atlantic. It's the coolest thing ever. Well, yeah, it's weird because uh, we had this manager that used to send out these just live board tapes to okay. uh, to all the record companies, and nobody 
I don't even think we got any responses until Atlantic. They were the only one, which was weird. And then, uh, you know, they sent the, sent our a r guy down to, to check us out at this club in Maryland. And then, like, maybe a week or so later, we were up in New York at SIR doing a showcase. And, uh, yeah, we were like, that's, that was our goal. And, and, you know, Atlantic, ACDC was on, on that label. So, um when the, the president came up to, we did our little uh, showcase thing and he comes up a- after we get done and he's standing there on the stage and he goes, well, boys, how'd, how'd you like to be on Atlantic Records? And, you know, it's like, <laughs> and of course, you know, in our minds, we're thinking we finally made it, you know, not realizing now we're on the sort of the, it's like starting over when right. you get signed. It, it's like a, a small fish in, a, in the ocean. <laughs> right. When you look at those contracts and you think about it now, you know, Mark and I have talked on this program, Mark and I have talked about it a lot. I've talked to Ron Young about the Little Caesar experience on this on this podcast. And I think mm-hmm. uh, their strong recollection is it's a, it's a loan, right? It's a it's a big fancy loan where you get in front of a whole bunch of money and you, you it's in the back of your head that, OK, we got to pay this back, but we're signed and we're going to make records and it's going to be easy. Everything's going to be easy for now on. Is that what you guys were thinking? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and we did find out along the way that it, it is a big loan and their their Atlantic was a loan shark, you know, and uh, we didn't. We came along, you know, it was weird because when we got signed, it just happened to be a time period when, uh, I mean, they, they just, the whole payola thing had just gone past and they weren't giving out advances. So we weren't one of those bands that got this chunk of money okay. when we got signed. We just got advanced, uh, you know, they put us in the studio and fronted us that money. But somewhere along the way, we we uh, finally realized that every little, like every time, like you'd order food, you order out food in the studio, that went on the bill, like everything. And we had such a horrible contract that, I mean, this was right when MTV was starting. So we didn't have video, uh, video budget in our contract. So all those videos we had to pay for. Wow. Wow. <laughs> So all that went on the on the bill, everything, <laughs> and and it it, just, it. But by the time, by the time we got off of the label, I think we were close to two million dollars in debt. But the thing that you know, the thing with those contracts is once you get dropped, you don't have to pay it back. So the trick is really to take all you can while you can, and we didn't take advantage of like all the the bonuses and all that stuff that we could have in advances um we had this this one manager that was really good at, at getting those bonuses and but donnie our bass player at the time he was kind of the leader of the band mm-hmm. he refused to take any of that stuff because he didn't want to like add more to the bill <laughs> and not knowing that we don't have to pay that back just take it but, I don't know. So we never, we never, we never got to experience like the big chunks of money. But if you if you don't have to pay it back, if you still have a con- like if you're still contracted to deliver a record or two more records, doesn't it mean that you can't also sign with another label and release stuff? Isn't that like the the play? Well, you ha- I guess you have to fill your your okay. contractual um, your agreement. Yeah. Right. Right. In fact, that's what when we uh, when we got off Atlantic. 
it was right around the time I left the band in 93 and uh, that last record it was the Kicks Live that was our last that was to f- fulfill the the contract okay okay and then um, and then the band went to East West uh, so you weren't part of the band at that point um, okay. I was still on there for that was for Hotwire okay okay which Got it. was still part of Atlantic they just sort of flipped us over to a smaller ah got it got it cool. um yeah, you, know, you talk about thinking that you finally made it when they put us on east west it's a it was a smaller thing so we were like kind of like the top rock band on that label and and at that point we had just had the success with with blow my fuse so we right. thought that record was going to be the one and then grunge came along <laughs> right at around the release date Right before our record was that record was released, Nirvana's record came out, okay. and it was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> so, if you were feeling like good about the band in terms of success, and again, you're you're younger dudes, and so um, you sign a label and you're able to record in big studios, um, but then you achieve even more success, at least from someone like me, like a kid like me looking from the outside in w- with blow my fuse. Cause that's when you had videos and that sort of stuff. So did it really feel like a different level at that point that the band had moved to? It did actually. Um, we, right before that record, we, we, uh, signed with a new management and yeah, things sort of, it, there was this feeling of things finally, you know, the stars finally lining up. Right. I, you could, it was like a, just this weird feeling. I mean, I could feel it. <laughs> yeah. And and for, for someone like me, so again, I, I've played in punk rock bands in shitty dive bars my, my whole life, and I love it, and it's great, right? But I've never had experiences like you or Mark Tremelio or Ron Young or, or you know, these are things that I, that I don't know. So when when you have like a hit record like blow my fuse was a hit record right and so what is that how does that change the people around you more than anything else because you maybe don't recognize that it's changing you but you certainly can recognize your surroundings changing uh well as far as the the business itself uh you know you have to get a little more professional and you know, we finally got, we, like it took, we didn't, we, we never had a tour bus until blow my fuse. Oh, that's man. the first wow. we were ever on a tour where we had to have a tour bus. So we, you know, those things come into play uh, like a professional, like tour manager, like a real guy and you know, and, and our road crew, it was that was probably the first time I didn't have to change my own strings on my guitar yeah, anymore. Yeah, so all that stuff comes in, but but the expenses go up too at the same time. Right. Well, in talking to Mark about that, I've I've often said that to me, success will be when someone loads my shit to stage and I don't have to do anything. To me, that would be the ultimate of measurement of success. That well, that, that yeah, I guess you would. It would be because that was like I look back on that time like it's no longer like that. Right. But that was when I could just go with sound check. My my guy would hand me my guitar. It'd be in tune, new strings. You know, everything's there. <laughs> I, and yeah, I didn't have to worry about it. So. So I don't want to really talk about the present day. We'll save that for a future episode. But I do just because you said that. Um, you guys 
headline M3. So M3 is in your home state of Maryland. You still have a really good draw there. You know, Mark said, well, I mean, Kix is headlining M3 and we're playing first on a Sunday. So there's the difference between the two levels of the bands. So when you do something like M3, is that experience like the old days where someone's just handing you stuff or are you still doing stuff on your own? Well, local shows like that, we do have uh, somewhat of a road crew. Okay. And when we do travel dates, we have to strip it down to just our sound guy and a drum tech. Um, so I, I still tune my own guitars, though. Okay. I still don't have a guy that does that, <laughs> um, you know, from like the old days. But uh, it's weird because M3 is, it's, um, I mean, that venue is, it's a really cool venue and we, you know, the place is, it's just a really nice uh, place to play. But what people don't realize is behind the scenes, it's it's like really hectic because there's so many bands. Mm-hmm. So they have a rotating stage. Right. We have to, if we want a sound check, we can do the sound check, but then they have to strike our stuff. So they have to pull our gear off and then reset it back up while the, the band before us is playing. <laughs> and then you have like, 10 minutes to run out there and make sure everything's working before they flip the stage around <laughs> and you know half the time something will go wrong like the in-ears won't be working you have to reset stuff and it, so it's it's really nerve-wracking it's not so it's not this smooth easy you just walk out there and play kind of thing it's like frantic yeah <laughs> cool uh then let's think back to that that showcase show you were talking about for for atlantic um, uh-huh. did, did, was that a high pressure? Do you remember it being a high pressure situation for you and or the band? Did, was this like, okay, we got to be perfect. Otherwise we're not going to, this isn't going to go the way we want it to go. It, yeah, it was a little bit, uh, but it was a new experience at the same time. Um, it, but the weird thing about it was it, you know, it was, it was in, in SIR and like a soundstage mm-hmm. thing. So it was completely dead. Like the... <laughs> I don't know if you've ever rehearsed in a soundstage, but it's there's no like ambient. Right. So like, there's no reflections. There's no reverb. It's just the sound goes out yeah. and stops. It's just dead. So you're just like kind of half struggling with with the tones and all that stuff. Right. I remember that. And this is you know this is back in the old days when you don't have in ears or any of that stuff, and right. you just rely on stage volume. But um, and the other thing was there was maybe 12 people from the record company sitting in front of us. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't an audience. It was just these 12, like record executive people and our manager was there. And the thing was the third around the third song in Doug Morris, who was the, the president of Atlantic at the time, he, we see him get up and walk, start walking towards the door and then, and then our manager jumped up and followed him, and and they leave, and we're thinking, uh, we're thinking we're bombing, they hate us, and but our bass player like he looks around, and he goes, keep playing, keep playing, so we just kept playing, and a little while later they came back in, and uh, it turns out later that at that third song. Doug Morris had already made up his mind he was going to sign us. So that's what he, he, when he went out in the hall and our manager went out there, he goes, you can tell them to stop. They're, they, they've got the deal. Wow. But our manager goes, well, why don't you come back in and just, just watch the rest of it? So he did. 
And was the, did you guys talk about it beforehand? We're going to play these songs or I don't want to play this song or we're going to do 40 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. You know, what, what, what were the rules like for doing that? Oh, we had a set list. We okay. put together a set list. But I, I can't remember how long it was now. I'm trying to remember. Probably too long. <laughs> no. It seemed like every time we did something like that, we just over, it was overkill. <laughs> but nobody ever gave us the, the correct the, the direction. You right. know, no one told you how you're supposed to do it, you know. Right. right. And so before you got the big tour bus, which, again, is something that that even I'm in my 50s now, I still dream about being on a tour bus and having someone drive me around and loading out my gear like that would be the ultimate. But um, be, before that, did you guys just have a band van that and you each took turns driving? Did you have some local tour managers helping you out? How were you handling those early, early tours? Yeah, it was a van, <laughs> a van and a 20 foot. 24 foot rider truck. That's what we wow. toured with. And I was pretty much, Jimmy and I did most of the driving, it seemed. And then uh, at one point, we did have a, our merch guy, a t shirt guy, he would drive too. Okay. So we just, rotate. yeah, we rotate. Whoever wasn't drunk would drive. That's like, <laughs> that's like the most important thing, right? Who's not drinking tonight so that they can drive to wherever we need to go next? That's. Well, the bad thing was, I mean, this was back in the 80s, so I, I was, people looked at me as the best driver because I could drive all night long. They didn't know that when they got out to pee on the side of the road, um, our bass player's girlfriend would pull out the cocaine. And those guys didn't know about it. She was sneaking it, and she would sneak it to me, so I'd keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but then I could drive all night. <laughs> okay, so that's what that was. That's what was helping you uh, drive. Uh, yeah, that, that's funny. Um, what do you remember about your gear back then compared to now? Uh, you know, when when we talk about guitar culture now, the pedals are such a big thing and boutique stuff, and everybody wants old shit and things like that. Do you remember? caring about your gear back then, you know, or just give me a, a Gibson and a Marshall and I'm cool. No, I've always been into the whole gear okay. thing. Um, yeah, my guitars, I was always into vintage guitars. Um, and that's the whole thing, you know, about the LA scene. I avoided the, the little hockey stick guitars with the whammies. I, I just refused to participate <laughs> in that. I wanted a, either a Gibson. Well, even now, I mean, now I'm a Fender guy, but back then it was pretty much just Gibson. Gibson, and the the most modern would would have been a PRS. But I, you know, I just happen to know Paul Reed Smith personally. Right, so. he's a Maryland guy, right? So that that makes perfect sense. Yeah. 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 So, but but as far as amps, yeah, there were all my amps were early '70s Marshalls, and then then at one point I got a. Oh, it was in 80, 84. I ordered a Mesa Boogie amp back when they were still hand wired. Mm -hmm. You had to order them and wait six months for, for them to build it for you. <laughs> and uh, so I got one of those and, and I pretty much used the Mesa Boogie throughout, like from, ah, yeah, from Midnight Dynamite on. Okay. I still had marshals that I would use for certain things, but, and I, I carried all the marshals with me, but it was that Mesa Boogie. Okay. Cool. And now have yeah. you, uh, no, oh, go, I gotta, ahead. I, go ahead. Yeah. One more, one more gear thing that yeah. I have to add is uh, my original amp in junior high school was a 
66 Fender Bassman. Yeah. I, that always ended up in the studio every time. And that's almost all my solos you hear on the records is that 66 Bassman. Okay. Cool. Which anybody that knows gear is sort of the, the blueprint for the early Marshalls anyways. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's, that's cool. And now thinking about gear, you guys are doing in-ears. It's 2021, almost 2022 now. Are you going Kemper? Are you doing any of that? Or are you still playing actual amps? <laughs> yeah. Kemper, I refuse to participate in that too. <laughs> <laughs> People just rave about those things. I know they're convenient, but yeah. I'd rather, I, I use um, primarily, well, except for fly dates, we have to, you know, whatever the background is. Whatever the background is, yeah. Yeah, I usually end up with a, 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 nine, a Marshall 900, but my personal amps, it's weird, they change over the years. I, I still own a 72 50 watt Marshall that I love that I used on the last Kicks record we did. But live now, I've, I've been using these 78 JMPs. Okay. The 51. Yeah. And I have, uh, the guy that's subbing for Ronnie right now, Bob, he's, he collects those things. So he lent, he lent me one for the last Rhino Bucket record, and I fell in love with it. I, it was the first time that I swapped out my, my basement for a Marshall, because right. I usually use that basement on all the Rhino Bucket stuff. And now he lent me that that 78 and then i found one on reverb and i bought one so now i've got his here and one of mine and then on the east coast i have two of his that he lent me for touring so that's all <laughs> i love those things yeah right on so now tying this back to again our mutual friend mark mark tremalia out in la he told a story once where he had he didn't have a les paul in and he needed one because he was going to do something again with bang tango um so you lent him gear uh mm -hmm. so what's the story how did you how did you meet mark and what's a, what's the background story there i met him he was playing with joe Lestay in in this band called the vagabonds mm -hmm. and i just remember going to see joe one night it's some little place on melrose was it Melrose? No, it wasn't Melrose. It was Fairfax, across from Cantor's. And uh, and Mark was playing. I remember he had this long, like, braided ponytail in the back or something. <laughs> and he was this little guy. But he played really, he really excellent guitar player. And then at some point, Joe was, he kept, I kept doing shows with Joe, uh, with that band. We would play together. We'd do shows together. And Joe kept saying, hey, uh, he kept trying to get me out of my band into his band. And then finally, I guess Mark was, went on to do something else. So I ended up in the Vagabonds for a while. Okay. And then Mark came back and it was both, both of us in that band. Or was it, I can't remember if he was already there when I joined it. But anyway, at one point, it was, he was in the band with me. And I lent him the Les Paul at that point. And it was my 75, my 75 standard that I used in the early days of kicks. So I lent that to him. And then I, at the end of the 90s, I, I went into this whole drug thing and ended up in jail and rehab. And I sort of lost touch with everybody. And it took me about a year and a half to get through all that stuff. And then I remember I came out and I was thinking, 
I didn't even get Mark's number. Like, like he's got my guitar. So I, mean, I just sort of like, I, it was in the back of my mind the whole time that he had my guitar. And at some point uh, I found out he was playing with, I think, was he playing with Mark? Mark Knight at that time? It could have been nineties. He was doing stuff with with Mark Knight again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or I don't know if it, that one was. No, it wasn't with Mark. It was because we met Mark at this bar where he was playing. Okay. Mark was gonna sub for me for Rhino Bucket for a couple of shows or something. So we met him at this. It was like an English pub, and and uh, and there was Mark on stage playing my Les Paul. And I'm like, oh, he still got it. So anyway, he, he ends up giving it back to me at the end of that show. And uh, yeah, it was just, just I just happened to stumble onto him. I, it was weird. And all those years I'm thinking, oh man, I've probably lost that guitar now. But but I got it back. Yeah, and Mark took care of it. Because Mark's a good guy and he wouldn't he wouldn't have done anything otherwise, right? Yeah, so that. Right, that yeah. And, he, and you know, he just got some good use out of that yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, so I have uh, just one more question here before I let you go, and, and we'll talk again at some future point. But when you think about the career trajectory of Kicks and, and you had that real taste of what I would call success and what you're doing now, um, is, there, is there anything that, that you would have done not necessarily differently, but anything that you feel like you missed, right? That you could have done or shouldn't have done, understanding where you ended up now. Yeah, I think I probably would have paid more attention to the business side of it, maybe. Mm -hmm. Especially when it came to signing contracts and all that stuff. I didn't even read I don't know if anyone ever does. (laughs) It's possible to read it. It's like, you know, it's like 25 pages. And you're just signing here and there. It's like a mortgage agreement. Right. Um, well, it's basically a loan agreement. But uh, yeah, I would have paid more attention to that, and also probably more attention in the studio as far as like uh, rec- the recording process. I mean, I um, I loved recording in the studio, but when it came to like the board and all that, that was just like, oh, I don't even know what's going on there. <laughs> so I didn't really, you know, I didn't pay attention to that. So that's come back to bite me now trying to deal with technology. Right. You know, it's like, oh, I wish I would have known. You know, I don't know. I kind of, I can get by, but it's, it's a struggle. Right. <laughs> And everything's different now. Like, you know, I can record a bunch of stuff sitting here in my little home office and, and, and whatever. Right. But you still have to understand the, the sonics of everything and, and yeah. what have you. And I have the ear for it. So I know when it's not right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's more than 75% of the battle. Right. It's like that, that skill set and, you know, having an ear and understanding what you want to play and how things should sound. Everything else mm-hmm. is the technical stuff. Um, and it's hard to have both of those skill sets, I would would argue. Right. And that's, yeah, I, I don't have that, the technical part right. of it. Right. And, and when I try to do that, like if I'm supposed to record a track for somebody and I get stuck on something, it'll kill my 
my whole inspiration. Like I'll, I'll be ready to go, and then by the time I figure out how to get it on the thing to record it, I'm just like, oh man, you feel like doing this now. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Uh, there's so much to talk about, and I look forward to some of these uh, future uh, discussions with you, Brian. I want to thank everyone who's listening. Um, your support is very much appreciated. Please continue to do so. Please tell your friends and give us a rate on Apple Podcast. Brian Forsyth, thank you so much uh, for being on the show, and I will talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Man.